for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you turn to Matthew 22, we begin each year as a church reminding ourselves of some essentials of who we are as Christians and thus who we are as a church. Things that are absolutely essential to um, our identity. These practices that have uh, been handed down to us, that have been practiced by our brothers and sisters for, for literally thousands of years. Engaging with God in His Word and engaging with God in prayer. Uh, they are the, the food and the air of our spiritual well-being. And this year, and then we continue beyond those two sermons where we're looking at how we engage with God in His Word and in prayer. And then we look at the outflow of that with two topics that are relevant, always relevant to our culture. And that is ethnic reconciliation, racial reconciliation, ethnic harmony, and sanctity of human life. Two issues that continue to be a struggle for us as Americans, for us in the South. And we want to continue to shine light on that and look at the Word of God to see how that helps us um, see the Kingdom of God come to more fruition in those great areas of need. And this year we want to tie together these January topical sermons. We do this every January. We want to tie it together this year with this theme of the greatest commandment. It's found in Matthew 22, for example, beginning in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Jesus had been asked several questions throughout this chapter as his earthly incarnational ministry was coming to an end, as it's getting closer to the time in which he would give his life for the sins of humanity. Uh, more and more of his opponents, religious leaders, were, were testing him, questioning him. You, something has to happen to take a perfectly innocent man and have him end up on a cross. And part of what God was working out in his sovereignty was the Jewish religious leaders would grow in such hatred of him, find him guilty of their religious crimes and traditions that would, that would make them so seethe with anger they want him dead. And they would do whatever it takes to make that happen. And chapter 22 of Matthew is highlighting several of these encounters. And in this one, this final encounter before uh, this last question, he's being asked a seemingly impossible question by this religious leader, which of the 614 recognized laws or commands of the Old Testament was the most important, the greatest. And Jesus' response, as usual, was jaw-dropping. To love the Lord your God with all that you are, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Quoting the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, and also um, part of Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself, because God is holy. What was shocking about that is these guys love to stand around and have their theological arguments and, and debates about what the most important command was, and this was literally the Shema, something that they prayed three times a day. But probably in their mind, never entered the conversation as the greatest command. In other words, Jesus is like, you make much of yourself and your intellect and your debate over these religious commands and laws that God gave in the Old Testament, and you're missing the most obvious thing. It's love. Love the Lord your God with all that you are. And love others. The other side of the coin. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
So the question for us is, how does the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all that you are impact how we engage with God in prayer? Last week, Jesse helped us examine how that impacts how we engage with God through the Word of God. And now today we'll look at prayer. And the idea I want to dig deep on today, what I hope the Spirit of God refreshes in us, or maybe for some this, is, this will be new, it's that prayer with God is intended to be an ongoing conversation of love and trust between a child and their father. It's to flow out of this loving relationship that we have with our father. It's part of the good news of the gospel that makes this possible. Before God made us alive in Christ, we were described in Romans 5.10 as God's enemies. We were described in Ephesians 2.1-3 as those who are dead in their sins and trespasses, children not of God, but children of wrath. We're described in Colossians 1.13, apart from Christ as being in the domain of darkness, but because Christ suffered for our sins, absorbing God's wrath for our sins on our behalf, we, in Christ, come alive in Him, forgiven of all of our sins, recognized by God through Christ as righteous in God's eyes. And we're described in many incredible ways throughout the New Testament, and one of the ways... Our relationship with God has changed is this. Now we've been adopted into God's family as His dearly loved children. He is our true Father. We are His kids. We go from being enemies to being His kids. Galatians 4, 4-7 probably shows this as clear as any other passage. When the time came to completion, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba being the most tender term of endearment between a child and their father in the Greek language. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. And this was all motivated by God's love. God loving us saving us, demonstrating His love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, adopting us into His family so that our heart is now transformed and we are now able to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And prayer is simply an outflow of this gospel transformation. Not this hill we have to climb to prove ourselves. Not this show we put on to impress others. But it's a child talking to their father because he loves us and now we love him. We communicate. So Jesus, the son of God, now our older brother in, in a sense, did all the work necessary on our behalf to become this, these children of God, adopted into the family of God, never ever to be kicked out. This is our true forever family. That is the foundation of having a relationship with God, expressed and experienced as a father and a child. And unlike our earthly, imperfect, and sometimes really broken and messed up relationships with dads, maybe for some here, dad wasn't even present. Our Father in Heaven is the perfect dad. And we as dads work really hard to point that out to our kids. I'm not your perfect father. I'm not your superhero. I can't keep all of my promises. I will let you down. I will fail you. And one day, I won't be around. Now, we do good stuff too. 
by His grace. But, but children, don't worship me. Let me, the best thing I can do for you is to let me point you to your perfect Father in Heaven. It's the best thing I can do. He will never let you down. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will never fail you and you will always have Him. He is the only one you worship. He's the only one who deserves that place. So Jesus and his work through the gospel give this, this foundation of love for this father-child relationship that provides the opportunity for this ongoing intimate prayer life. But not only that, that's amazing, miraculous enough, but not only that, Jesus also helps us to see that in some ways we are to continue to have these childlike qualities that describe how we relate to God. In some ways, the spirit of a child is supposed to mark us to this day. So that our prayer lives could be described as this intimate, ongoing conversation of love and trust. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said to begin the prayer with our Father. Which again, like so much of what he said and did was revolutionary. The typical Jew never would address God Almighty in such intimate terms as our Father. Jesus said in Matthew 18, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, So who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a small child. And had the small child stand among them. Truly, I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Unless we turn and become like children, humble like children, there's much we can learn from children about how we interact with our Father that brings us great freedom and joy in our prayer lives. Part of what holds us back from a vibrant prayer life is that we can be frozen by fear or frozen by failure. We've tried to have a more vibrant prayer life and we've failed so much, it's just hard to try again. Because all we see is how we failed in the past and so we assume we're going to continue to fail. Or we're frozen by, I need to say the right words perfectly. Or I need to dedicate the right amount of time. Martin Luther prayed for three hours, so let's start there. Good luck. Or I need to have this prayer time at the perfect time of day. Or I need to perform well so God will listen and respond like I want. I can't get distracted. Why does my mind jump around all the time? Or I, I, I go to pray and I just fall asleep. I'm pathetic, worthless, terrible at this. Children, on the other hand, are also self-absorbed and selfish. But it doesn't freeze them. They just vomit all their messiness out on us. They don't hold back. They come just as they are, which is exactly how our Father wants us to come, just as we are, with all the mistakes and failures and flaws and fears, all that stuff. Matthew eleven twenty eight. come to me, all you who are perfect and have it figured out and have finally cleaned yourself up. Come to me, all you who have this, this plan of prayer and Bible reading in 2023 that's going to rock like never before, like you're going to kill it like never before. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come messy. Not performing at optimal efficiency. Come as you are. Just watch a kid eat a popsicle, right? Blue and pink, sticky from here to here to here. You just go outside and finish. I'm going to hose you down before you come back in. No hiding it, they just, they, that's who they are. 
Our Father wants the real us to come to the real Him, right where you are, with all your flaws and failures, out in the open for Him to see. That's where you start. He doesn't want us to pretend or wear masks of better performances. That's the hypocrisy of the religious leaders that Jesus hated. Literally a hypocrite was someone who wore a mask in the theater. They were two different people playing two different roles. They weren't real. They pretended. That's never who God wants us to be. Just come as you are, open and honest and humble about the mess that we really are. That we really are. Jesus taught us to ask like a child. Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be open. Who among you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, earthly fathers who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Later in Luke 18, uh, he tells a parable of a, a widow. And he, he, it says in verse 1, Now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. Then he goes on to tell the story about this persistent widow going to this wicked judge asking for justice. And he, he won't give, he won't give justice. And she just keeps persisting until finally he's like, all right, you wore me down. Here, here's your justice. And it's intended to be a contrast for us that our Father in Heaven is nothing like a wicked judge. And if a wicked judge will give a persistent widow what she seeks, how much more Will your loving earthly father give to his kids if we come and we keep asking? And we saw in James recently, James 4.2, you do not have because you do not ask. Would your prayer lives, would our prayer lives be more characterized by persistence or by pessimism? Like what about a child? You ever seen a child have a problem with asking? They will wear you out, wear you down, until finally you lose it and you make it an issue of discipline. And even then, the hard-headed ones will keep coming until they get what they want. And sometimes it's good stuff. Let's play a game. And they get old and they ask in more creative ways. That's more like how our Father wants us to come to Him. Not us measuring, calculating, oh, I wonder if. Our Father's like, just come and keep coming and never stop coming to me. Partly because He loves us and just wants us to be with Him, to come to Him for these things. He's not a maniacal Father who's got some kind of checklist. Okay. When it hits 876 requests, now I'll do it. It finally, it's not it. He wants us. He wants us to come to Him to see He is the ultimate source of all that is good. He is the ultimate source of all that we need, all the grace that we need. He is the ultimate source of power in the entire universe. How much more should we come to Him first? Where else would we go? Like, do you believe this? He's the ultimate source for love and power and goodness and grace in the entire universe. Is that reflected in how we pray? Or to fix our problems, maybe our lives are more about, well, what can I figure out first? What can I scheme? What can I make happen? We spend more time wondering and worrying than just believing in Him as the goodness 
empower, in believing in the goodness and power of our dad and asking him and asking him and asking him. Right? And they're just trying to make stuff happen on our own. If we believe nothing is too hard for the Lord, that the faith of a mustard seed can move mountains, while not turning our father into our own personal vending machine, but recognizing he is the greatest source of love and power in the universe. Do we pray like a child, believing he can fix anything and do anything according to his will in the lives of us and the lives of others? Jesus would sometimes encounter this kind of belief and faith in the Gospels, and he always would point it out. Surprisingly, yet in the sovereignty of God intentionally, it more times came from non-Jewish people that he encountered. In Luke 7, the Roman centurion who came and asked for his paralyzed servant to be healed, and he told Jesus, look, I recognize authority, and you have authority, you have power, you don't even got to come to my servant, you just say the word, it's done. And this caused Jesus to say in Luke 7, 9, he was amazed at him and said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. A similar kind of story in Matthew 15, the Canaanite woman and her demon-possessed daughter. Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, he's fleshing out this idea of praying like a child. He also says that like children, we can learn to play again with our dad. Like sometimes we get so frustrated in our prayers because our minds are distracted. Our minds do wander if you're a normal human being today. We keep thinking about things we have to do. Sometimes just weird stuff pops in. And we can evaluate ourselves and feel like we're failing. But kids don't come with an agenda list to discuss with you. Your kids will walk up to you and just say the most off-the-wall, random, weird thing. And you're like, okay. Or maybe it's profound. Maybe it's kind and endearing. You, you cannot predict what a kid will say. Because their mind is all over the place. Recently I was sitting around a fire with my boys and I was trying to draw their hearts to God their creator who makes all things beautiful and allows us to enjoy this amazing thing called fire. And I asked them this question, like, what do you love most about God? And they gave me some really good answers. And literally in the next breath, we're back to bodily functions and things that come out of our bodies. I'll let you fill in the blanks. Just profound, oh, thank you God, you're working my boys. And we're back to the typical boy stuff. But that's kids, and they just, they're kids. They're just being themselves. So don't see wandering minds or distracted minds as this barrier to enjoying fellowship with your dad. See it as an open door for wonder and play. Maybe he wants you to think on something else, pray about something else, or someone else. Have fun with it. Just enjoy the journey with dad. That's the key, this ongoing conversation of love and trust between a child and their father. We're not trying to manipulate our Father in heaven or trying to impress Him with performance. That's not the prayers of a child. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 6. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles since they imagine they'll be heard for the many words. Don't be like them because your Father knows the things you need before you ask him. The religious hypocrites wanted to impress others. The Gentile babblers wanted to manipulate and treat God like a pagan deity and make him do what they wanted. But our Father just wants us and wants us enjoying him just like we are, sharing our hearts with him, sharing our thoughts, 
always about everything with great boldness and faith. Not perfectly formed and worded prayers, but real and authentic. Not for people to say, wow, look how well you pray. But for people to say, wow, look how much you love your Father. Look how much you depend on Him. How desperate you are for Him. But, but, like I can feel the buts in this room. Uh, I have them myself. This nagging. You see, one of the great barriers we have to overcome to enjoy this kind of prayer life is cynicism. Being a cynic. It is the spirit of our age. Miller says in his, his work, many Christians stand on the edge of cynicism, struggling with defeated weariness. Their spirits have begun to deaden, but unlike the cynic, they have not yet lost hope. My friend Brian summarized it this way. I think we've all built up scar tissue from our frustrations and we don't want to expose ourselves anymore. So fear constrains us. Cynicism and defeated weariness have this in common. They both question the active goodness of God on our behalf. Left unchallenged, their low-level doubt opens the door for bigger doubt. They've lost their childlike spirit and thus are unable to move toward their heavenly Father. Satan opened the door to cynicism in the garden, helping Adam and Eve question, is God really good? He's only told you not to eat from that tree because he's hiding something from you. He has a secret agenda. He's two-faced. You can't trust him. And as we know, they believe the serpent and not God and sin into creation. And when cynicism shows up today in us, we do the same thing about God and about each other. A cynic, cynicism sees what's really going on. They see beyond the show. They see what people are really about. This is beyond healthy skepticism. This is assuming the worst about people and ultimately about God. A true cynic cannot be convinced otherwise. Oh, they know. Oh, I know what's going on here. I see. You can't fool me. Cynicism creates a numbness toward life. Because everyone has an angle. A cynic is always observing, critiquing, but never engaged. Never loving and never hoping. To be cynical is to be distant. While offering a false intimacy of being in the know, cynicism actually destroys intimacy. And it can lead to a creeping bitterness that can deaden and even destroy the spirit. And if you add prayer to a cynical or even a weary heart, it feels phony. Life is already fake. Everyone is fake. Why fake pray? It doesn't do anything. Miller contends that cynicism is actually rooted in the wrong kind of faith. Naive optimism or foolish confidence. It's not genuine faith in our Father, but it's faith in faith. It's believing to believe. It's blind faith, which is not... Genuine faith. God does not call us to blind faith. God calls us to faith in Him. The character and nature of God. The person and work of Jesus. As proclaimed in the scriptures. We're not called to believe for the sake of belief. You have to believe. You know, you just have to believe something. Why not this? As good as anything. No, we believe in Him. If your faith is naive and not rooted in your Father. Then what happens when things don't work out? 
or you see the brokenness of people and culture. Optimism rooted in the goodness of people or a general feeling of, well, it's going to work out and be okay. Well, this is optimism that is naive and foolish. And it doesn't take long for that to be crushed. Not all people are good. Good people aren't always good. Even the best with their best intentions still fail and fall short. And life is going to kick you in the teeth eventually. And this now shattered optimism rooted in naive faith sets us up to fall into this defeated weariness and then ultimately cynicism. And we just swing from, the, from optimism, foolish optimism, to this dark cynicism so quickly. And it's worsened in our culture, it's made worse in our culture by things like social media because we have this incessant pursuit of perfection. We need or we deserve the perfect profile pic, the perfect body consciousness, the perfect relationship, the perfect proposal and the perfect place with the perfect lighting and the perfect vibe and the perfect wedding and the perfect marriage, the perfect kids, the perfect family. <clears throat> and when it's not perfect, well, if I just take the picture at the right angle, I'm up here, not down here, I've learned that, up here, then at least I can make it look perfect to others. But inside you know the truth. It's not perfect. It's not good at all. And the cynicism and the bitterness inside of our hearts only grow. Cynicism is the air we breathe. And it is suffocating our hearts. Unless we become disciples of Jesus, this present evil age will first deaden and then destroy our prayer lives, not to mention our souls. And our only hope is to follow Jesus as he leads us out of cynicism. So how does Jesus lead us out of cynicism? Jesus didn't ignore evil. He recognized his presence. But he also wasn't overcome by evil. He faced it head on. He told his disciples once when he was sending them out two by two in Matthew 10. Look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of them. Because they will hand you over to local courts and flog you in their synagogues. Beware of them. Beware of men. Beware of people. But still go out. Don't be afraid. So afraid you don't go out. No, go out. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Shrewd as serpents. Wise to this age. A healthy skepticism. Fully aware of the evil in the hearts of humanity. But innocent as doves. You never join in the evil. And never afraid of evil. Because he tells us later in that chapter, don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. Even the hairs of your head have all been counted. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. The cure for a dead, cynical heart is the cautious optimism of Jesus. We're cautious because we know evil is real and it exists. And the primary evil I'm most concerned about is the evil right here. Myself. But we're always and eternally optimistic because Jesus has come and crushed and defeated evil. Jesus hanging on the cross was much for being a fool. He had the power to come down, but he just hung there. And died like a common criminal. Why would he do that? 
Jesus did not answer his mockers because his ear was tuned to his father. Like a wise serpent, he said nothing. Like a harmless dove, he, he does nothing. Even as his father turns his back on him, Jesus trusts. Faced with the storm of life, he tightens his grip on his father. Jesus' childlike faith delighted his father. And on Easter morning, his father acted on Jesus' dead body, bringing him to life. He trusted in God. God delivered him. Evil did not have the last word. And hope was born. This morning, if you struggle to enjoy a prayer life that is marked by an ongoing conversation of love and trust between a child and their dad, if your heart is more cynical this morning than childlike, then I plead with you, let Jesus set you free. But Jesus set you free. Yeah. People let us down. People mess up. We let ourselves down. We fail. Don't just see that though. See beyond that. See Jesus at work. See your Father and His perfect love. See Jesus conquering all evil and sin and suffering and sorrow and injustice. See the coming day in which all of that will be gone and all things will be made new. And see snippets of that in your life and the lives of others. It's always, always there. Take time as individuals and DNA groups and mission communities and families to talk about where have you seen the evidence of God's grace? It's always there. Where do you see evidence of His Spirit and His presence? His goodness? No matter how dark life is, it's always there. Looking around this room and knowing what some of you have walked through in your, in your story, going back to your childhood or just in the time that I've known you. I've seen you profess that. Some really hard places as families and individuals and marriages and parenting. And here you profess the goodness of God, the presence of Jesus in the midst of all that. He's always there. The cynic focuses on the darkness, but the child focuses on the Savior and Shepherd of our souls. It's what we remember and we celebrate each week as we gather through communion. Jesus did not ignore evil. He wasn't overcome by evil, but he came and destroyed evil. Through his body being broken for us, through his blood being shed for us, so once again, see and believe and savor the sufficient and loving grace of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. Take some time this morning to let your heart be warm once again to who he is and how he brings us into his family. As a dearly loved son, as a dearly loved daughter, we are free to be his kids, to enjoy being his kids in our current state, stumbling forward, unless you're just killing it in 2023. You're going to be stumbling soon. Stumbling forward by His grace. Honestly seeing our sins. And yes, the sins of others. But still trusting and believing in the goodness of Jesus to defeat sin. And one day rid the universe of it. So I invite you this morning to take time, reflect. Let this beautiful reality that we celebrate in this meal settle deeply in your soul once again. Believe once again. Let your heart be warm once again. And when you're ready, we invite you to share in this Meal with us, to celebrate with us. If you're baptized, if you publicly declare, I'm a follower of Jesus, then we invite you to share in this meal. If you're repentant, in other words, your heart isn't 
totally turned off and cold like a, a cynic, but you're, I, I hate sin in me. I'm believing in Jesus once again. That's repentance. I don't want to sin. I love Jesus. I want to love Jesus. That's repentance. Then, then you're invited to share this meal with us. So take some time to turn and trust in Jesus once again. To say, I believe, Father, but help my unbelief. And then when you're ready, come, grab the elements, and then we'll share in this meal together.
Jesus' broken body and his shed blood for our sins. Lovingly, willingly given for us. So necessary? Yes. Lovingly given? Yes. Sufficient? Yes. So let's eat and drink and enjoy this meal to our King. Jesus, we celebrate you. In whatever ways our hearts have maybe grown cold or distant, cynical, Jesus, help us. It's not how you want us to live. It's not who you want us to be. It suffocates the joy that you want us to have. It cuts us off from loving others and being loved by others. So redeem and restore and renew your good work in us so that we can be free to be your kids, free to enjoy you as a father, free to believe in you, to do the impossible, free to pray bold prayers of faith, free to be messy and messed up struggling, transparent about that, open that, open about that with those who love us. Because we're all like that. Free to quit pretending, putting on a show, just being real. Yes, we sin. But yes, we trust in Jesus. For some, that might mean salvation. Today is the day of their salvation. So let them call out to you and trust in you and receive life for the first time by believing that you are the Savior of their souls, that you have done every work necessary to redeem them and make them alive in you, for you to come and live inside of them and to give them life now and life forever. For many of us, it's renewal and refreshing. It's maybe even revival, a reawakening of what you've done before. So let that happen. Let us leave here transformed and changed by your goodness and your grace. Thank you, Jesus, for making all these things possible. We pray in your strong and sweet name. Amen.